Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by Fenley Road Sports. My name is Bob. As always, I'm hanging out talking sports with my older brother, Chris. (laughs) Chris, I I hear the chants in the background, but uh, I just wanted to ask you, how's it going? (laughs) It's going pretty good. I think, like most of America, I'm doing very well today. Yeah, absolutely. We're uh, recording just minutes after... uh, the women's U.S. team won the World Cup. (laughs) They're those chancing. I've been hearing a lot. I mean, with 4th of July and and this weekend, it's just been nonstop chanting with some some serious patriotism going on down here. I don't know how it is up there, but I'm getting a little hoarse. It's been pretty sweet. I mean, like you said, 4th of July already inspires a lot of patriotism. I had a little baseball ball tour this weekend i went to see the columbus clippers and the cincinnati reds play check off another stadium on my list so i'm at 14 mlb par- ballparks now so i actually was driving back from cincinnati when the game started i figured oh i'll miss a little bit and catch most of the second half if not the second half of the first half turns out that was a big mistake given how the final played out yeah absolutely I think a lot of people probably missed um, everything. I mean, you know, just getting late to the to watch the game, and, and if you're 15 minutes late, you lo- you missed all four goals. Oh yeah, I mean, they scored. The U.S. just came out, and it was a hundred. It was just clear that they were really, really mad about losing that 2011 World Cup. I think this team wanted Japan. I think this team was glad Japan was facing them, and this team came out and just laid the hammer down right from the get-go. I think they scored, and Carly Lord scored in the first twice in the first five minutes. I think it was the three-minute and five-minute mark. And 16, 17 minutes in, they're up 4 nothing, including another ridiculous goal by Carly Lloyd from half-field or midfield, excuse me. I was about to say half-court, but I caught myself there. We're talking, <laughs> we've been talking a lot of basketball, so forgive me. But... That goal, if you haven't seen it, you gotta you gotta YouTube it, Google it, something. It's just one of the craziest goals I've ever seen. I saw it on the halftime highlights. Yeah, no, that goal was amazing. I thought she was just clearing it. I didn't realize that she intentionally shot it like that. That was ridiculous. Um, yeah, that definitely took everybody by surprise. I mean, last last week I said on the podcast that I was expecting a low scoring game of you know, less than two goals on each side. And, and for the U.S. to go up 4 nil in 15 minutes, that's r- ridiculous. <laughs> I think that uh, what you see a lot in these finals is, you know, two evenly matched teams that are just looking, are trying really hard not to make mistakes. And then the, it just turns into a boring match. I mean, the last two men's World Cups, I remember, were def- decided 1-0, uh, the the U.S. Japan game in 2011 that was decided by penalty kicks if I'm not mistaken. So these these games are are usually just low scoring and and for the U.S. to score a goal within the first three minutes, I think it was just like an avalanche where they they kept they kept up that momentum and they kept things just rolling and they didn't really think about the moment and all of a sudden they're up four nil because after that it was a pretty slow paced game that you would typically see in a final. Yeah, the 2011 final actually was 2-2. Two to two. That was actually a pretty fun match. I think the U.S. had the lead twice. There was a lot of lead changes in that match, and then Japan scored late to force overtime, and then 
the U.S. lost on penalty kicks. So even though it went to PKs, it was still a relatively high-scoring affair for a soccer match. I mean, four combined goals is relatively pretty high that deep in the tournament, or at least that's what you keep telling me because, uh, you know, we kind of got into that debate last week when you said that, uh, I think you said that, 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 you know, two goals was high or something like that, and that, that kind of surprised me. You follow soccer a little closer than I do. But certainly four goals in the first 20 minutes is extremely high scoring. I don't care what level of the tournament yeah. you're at. And yeah. yeah, I mean, when you when you get to this level of the tournament, you're right. I mean, goals get a lot harder to come by because this is the best of the best. I mean, the United States, Germany, and Japan are three of the best teams in the world. I think they're the three best teams in the world. So it's only natural that the games will be a little low scoring. But today's game against uh, today's final was certainly not the case. Yeah, I certainly felt like I, I agree with you that the, the goals are, are hard to come by the later in the tournament. I think that's what I was trying to say last week. But the thing that we saw with the with this US team was their strength was the back line and Hope Solo got the golden glove. Uh they had only let up three goals the whole tournament. They had that series of consecutive clean sheets in the middle of the tournament their strength was the defense and you just kept on waiting for the offense to hit its stride. And it, it ended up, they, they looked so clean and passed the ball so well and made so many plays in that Germany matchup that they were able to surprisingly ride that momentum into the Japan matchup where they look like the clear cut number one team in, in this final match. Oh, certainly. And it's unfortunate that they couldn't hold on for one more minute. Their shutout streak of 540 minutes was an exact tie with Germany so, unfortunately, they couldn't hold out for one more minute against Japan to get that record. But certainly a very impressive streak. I mean, they gave up a goal to Australia in the first match, and then they just shut out everyone else. Five straight shutouts is just insane. And I know Hope Solo, and certainly she deserves a ton of credit, very worthy of that golden glove. But Klingenberg, Sauerbrunn, Julie Johnson, and Allie Krieger, I may have butchered a couple names there. That's Megan Klingenberg and Becky Sauerbrunn that I said there earlier that that back line was just awesome the entire tournament and you you can't go 540 minutes without allowing a goal five straight shutouts including three knockout round shutouts including a shutout against germany who coming into the semis had scored 20 goals in the tournament and ended in their semi-final and third place match with two shutouts so certainly hats off to the u.s defense it's been the strength of this team but I also think that the turning point kind of came against China, maybe more specifically against Colombia, when Lauren Holiday and Megan Rapino got yellow cards and were suspended against China. That forced Kelly O'Hara into the starting lineup, and she actually had a really strong match against China, even though she didn't score. Then against Germany, came in as a sub and scored that big icing goal to make it 2 nothing late in the game. I thought... The suspensions to Holiday and Rapone turned out to be a blessing in disguise for the U.S. because against China, they kind of turned the page a little bit and found a lineup that ignited their offense. From what we saw in the group stage, the, the offense, we knew it could be better and we knew that it was only a matter of time before they, they, they played just a little bit better. It's not what they're known for, but they, they were definitely struggling to find chances and find opportunities. And when they entered the knockout round, they seemed to slowly but surely get a groove going. And some of the passing that they made in these last two matches were just really incredible. 
Um, but up until that semifinal matchup, I would have said that if you were to pick the best player on this team, it, it would be somebody from that back line, probably uh, Sauerbrunn as, as the center back, as, as the captain of that back line. So uh, really impressive by Carly Lord what she did today and what she did against Germany and deserving of the golden ball because she scored so many goals. But uh, it's not often that the defenders get a lot of credit. In fact, since the golden ball was given out in 1978, only one non-midfielder or attacker has gotten the award, and that was a goalkeeper in 2002 for Germany. So it's very rare to to award and acknowledge a backline. It's, it's really hard to do, but if ever was a time, I would think it would be this tournament with this national team. Yeah, I think it's kind of unfortunate that Carly Lloyd didn't win the golden boot because uh, Celsius Sasek from Germany actually tied her in goals and assists and because she played fewer minutes, won the golden boot on tiebreakers. I think if Lloyd had won the golden boot, maybe you consider giving the golden ball to a U.S. defensive player. I, I don't think it's possible for Carly Lloyd to walk off that stage without one golden award. And certainly she's worthy of the golden ball because she was fantastic in the knockout stage. In the group stage, she didn't score at all. In the knockout stage, she scored every match. So I definitely think that she is worthy of the golden ball. But it would have been nice if they could have awarded someone on that back line. I also thought Julie Johnson had a very strong tournament, even though she had a kind of a shaky final. She's only 23, so she's kind of a rising star on this U.S. team and hopefully will be there for the next, ideally, two more World Cups and maybe even three more Olympics. So definitely someone to look forward to in being a staple in that back line. There are a couple question marks, though, with some of the older players. I guess we'll get to that in a bit. But, yeah, I just think that you're right. The defense was definitely carried the United States throughout this tournament when they were struggling group stage. One other point I wanted to make about that, though, Alex Morgan was fighting her way back from a knee injury, and I certainly think that it took her some time to find her footing in this tournament, and I think as she got more comfortable in the offense, the offense also started to ramp up a little bit, and she started drawing more attention because she was getting more comfortable in the offense. Yeah, definitely. Alex Morgan on the team, midfield and and striking, she's the most creative player in, in the attack and so when she, she was hurt for those first few games it, and it just took a while for her to get back into form but the offense really runs through her as as great as Carly Lloyd has been in attacking Alex Morgan is the one that sets it up and, and gets creative with it so as she gained strength as she gained form you, you, it was you're exactly right it was noticeable that the offense was getting better and getting more crisp on the attack so yeah, that was definitely needed. And coming into the tournament, that that was a, a a recognition that everyone knew that 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 front line was dinged up. You know, Morgan was hurt, and Abby Wambach was just not uh, the star that playing at that star level that that we saw four years ago. So they were they were definitely searching for answers and who would who would carry the team. And it took a whole tournament for it to to pan out. But now you have a, a new star in Carly Lloyd. Well, not really new. Did you realize she was 32 years old? I know, I know she's been on, on multiple teams and it has a, has a decorated record, but she's definitely been in the shadow of guys like Solo, Morgan, and Wambach. But uh, 
no question everybody knows uh, anybody that was watching these games know, knows her name now oh certainly but it's just it's kind of funny i'm not funny but it's rare to see someone break out at 32 years old and i thought she was a lot younger and until i started you know researching her for the podcast and stuff i didn't realize she was in her 30s i thought she was more of a rising star alex morgan definitely will be a fixture on this team for years to come i think the burden is going to fall on her soon to carry this front line and if she were healthy she probably would have had a much better tournament yeah it's clear that it took her some time to get acclimated and that even on some of her shots she just was a little bit off and wasn't a hundred percent but you know credit to her i mean she played through it and certainly commanded the attention of a lot of defenders yeah, definitely. Coming into the tournament uh, a little further out before the injuries and before the rosters were getting set, it was expected to be Morgan's team, and she was going to be the star scoring most of the goals. But because of that injury, they had to look other ways, and uh, thankfully this team was is so deep and talented, they, they have lots of people to step up and, and take over the attack. So certainly expect Alex Morgan to have a much better Olympics than she did a World Cup. Not that she had a bad World Cup, but with a year to recover going in the Olympics, hopefully healthy, we should see sort of the transcendent player that she's capable of being. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you watched the, uh, the award ceremony at the end. I did. (laughs) The announcers were, were freaking out about who would hold the trophy at the end. And I understood what they were trying to say, but they like, they they got in the biggest debate about who should hoist that trophy, whether it be Lloyd Wambach or or um, what's Rip- Rampone. 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 I want to see Rapino, but I know that's right. They're very similar. <laughs> I thought at first glance, I'm like, why wow, are they sisters? But but there's like a slight difference in the spelling. Yeah, you know, they they were just debating about that for so long. I'm like, who? They just won the World Cup. I don't think any of them care, but. Uh, let's talk about those last two, Wambach and Rampone. Uh, definitely have been the fixtures of the teams of the national teams for the last uh, uh, half decade, at least. I mean, lo- longer than that. And both of them are are near in forty. So, what do you see in their future? Are they going to come back for the Olympics? What do you see in terms of replacing that leadership, that talent? Well, Rampone has been around for 20 years. This is her fifth World Cup. She was on the 1999 team. Wombach, this is her fourth World Cup, and it's good for her to go away with a title. I mean, even though she wasn't as big a contributor as she was in past World Cups, she certainly deserves to cap her career with a World Cup championship. I honestly don't know. I mean, Rampone is 40 years old. It wouldn't surprise me if she didn't stick around for the Olympics. Wombach, I could see her sticking around for one more Olympic run just because she's not as old as Rampone. She's, I think, uh, you know, three or four years younger. But this certainly is their last hurrah after the Olympics. I don't see them coming back for another major tournament anymore. And, you know, I mean, again, I mean, Wombach has played in four World Cups, Rampone five. I believe Wombach is tied for second in all-time World Cup goals. I believe she has 12. So I think if this isn't the end of their career, the Olympics certainly is. Yeah, definitely. I think Rampone, this will be it for her. Um, I don't think many people recognize her anymore. I, I forgot that she was on the team. I, I read that she was she was going to be on there and she was going to make appearances and that she was you know, definitely the senior member of the team. Um, Wombach is, has done 
a ton for for women's soccer and is still even though she played uh she was the first sub in every match played about 20 or 30 minutes a game she's still fans freak out when she hits the pitch and i think that she is going to be around a little bit longer at least for those that olympics um i think she's going to be on that team for for a little bit longer just to stay just to stay recognized and i think she might you know transition into some other coaching or managerial role with the u.s team because she is just such a fixture and such a has been such a uh, great influence on, on the team and soccer for the country so i don't think we're seeing the last of her oh no we're certainly not going to see i would hope that wombach would stay involved with u.s women's soccer beyond her playing career just to correct myself she is tied for second in world cup history with 14 goals she's scored in each of the last four tournaments and she's only 35 years old so she probably will play in the olympics just because she's such a superstar and i also think that she'll probably stay beyond after that and maybe go on some of the victory tours because after the u.s women's team won the olympics they did a little bit of a victory tour across the u.s playing three or four matches in each region to kind of go from city to city and let the fans enjoy uh, their victories. So I think Wombach is going to stay around for a while. But if you're asking me whether or not she'll be on the team at 39 years old for the next World Cup, I don't know. I mean, Rampone was on the World Cup team at 40 years old, so it's not out of the question that Wombach could be on there at 39. But once you get up in that area of age, anything can happen. Yeah, definitely. It's just depends what what they want to do at this point but they the team itself needs to look uh in other directions for contributions and thankfully the u.s team is in no lack of youth or depth or talent or leadership uh, i think you saw you know multiple people step up every game and and it was a different name being called to make plays to, to show leadership so i think they'll be in a great spot uh unfortunately i don't know that much about the rising stars that are maybe in the U20 team but you know the US has been to four straight uh, semifinals in women's world cups like they're not going anywhere this team is really healthy and strong so uh, whoever is replacing those names uh, I have no doubt that they're going to do just as well fourth straight semifinal this is their seventh straight semifinal they have never failed to reach the semifinals they have placed third three times first three times and they lost, obviously, to Japan in 2011. They were the only team with three World Cups. This team is a machine. This is a monster dynasty. We talked about dynasties on our last podcast. I think this would qualify. It's a little bit different when you go every four years between competition to judge that. But the U.S. women's soccer team is a superpower. There's no doubt in my mind that they've got talent bubbling up. They've got current talent seasoning. I mean, I think Alex Morgan is going to be the new face of women's soccer for the next two World Cups. She is young enough to carry that torch for that long. She is in her prime. She will be in her prime for the next World Cup and probably the one after that. She will have at least two more Olympics. I think that this is going to be Alex Morgan's time to shine after this World Cup. And then we'll see who kind of comes up and supports her to eventually take her place when when her time has come and gone. But, yeah, the torch has already been passed because you saw, I mean, Wombach didn't play that much. She was a substitute for most of this tournament. She was a big part of the team. Yeah, I mean, I'm certain, certain her veteran presence and everything was big, 
But when we're talking about on the field, I mean, the defense was the strength, and the offense finally started coming together. The question I have for you, though, is Hope Solo has been fantastic the last couple World Cups and throughout her career. She's 33 years old. We just saw Tim Howard on the men's side compete in a World Cup at around 36, 37 years old. Is this the last hurrah for Hope Solo? I don't think so either. I think uh, I think goalkeeping, there's less strain on your body. Obviously, you're not um, you're not running as much. You're not doing physical contact throughout the game. So I think they, you can goalkeep a little further past uh, what, say, an attacker can because eventually you start losing that speed and that. She's, she's shown no signs of slowing down, so uh, I think she at least has one more World Cup in her if she wants it. So I guess Tim Howard's age, I guess 36 or 37 years old. He was 35 when he played in that World Cup last year. So yeah, sorry about that again. I'm striking out left and right here with ages, by the way. It's okay. You're you're ballparking it, man. You're like, you know, plus one. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I'm, I'm like the guy at the amusement park who's guessing your age. I get two years either way, so it's all right. good. Right. Another shout-out, though. I wanted to mention her name, Sawa, of Japan. Did you realize this is her sixth World Cup? That's pretty insane as well. Yeah, and when the announcer said it, that's when I, when I heard it. But that's pretty impressive. You know, the Americans aren't the only team that have these uh really famous players you know marta from from brazil who's who's getting up there in age is another big household name like there's some very talented players that we've seen play in this tournament that uh it's going to be their last one as well yeah marta brazil 15 goals all time she is the world cup record holder yeah she makes about three hundred thousand dollars more than any other woman in soccer as well it's pretty awesome yeah. All right. Now, were you at least a little nervous when Julie Johnson, who I thought had a fantastic tournament, a little shaky in the finals, own goal in the 52nd minute, cut it to 4-2? to two. Were you at least a little bit nervous that Japan maybe was going to pull the unthinkable comeback? No. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Really? I mean, no. First off, it was a, it was a own goal. I mean – they didn't even score that goal. So, no, I wasn't nervous at all. You still have a two-goal cushion just to tie it. I mean, no, I was I was not worried. They Look, when you go up 4-0 within 15 minutes, most people are like, wow, this game is over. But you still do have to play uh, the, the rest of the match. So how do you get through that? Uh, naturally you play a little bit looser to start off and so you're going to let up goals even if your strength is your defense even if you have a shutout streak going you're playing super loose if you're 4-0 and the other team is playing desperate so yeah they're going to let up some goals but once once it came 4-2 you knew that I, I knew they weren't going to score another goal the rest of the match well and then the next minute Tobin Heath scores and pretty much put that to rest but I was at least a little worried because they had a lot of time left. That's the thing. It happened in the 52nd minute. They still had plenty of time to mount some attacks. I guess you're right. Ultimately, it was still a lot to overcome. But you don't want to give a team any sort of sort of momentum. And I'm glad that the U.S. responded right away and, and answered. Heath scored a goal. So it kind of destroyed any chance of Japan coming back. Yeah, I mean, obviously another goal that's... A killer when you when you score a goal and they just answer right back but 
I, I wasn't scared at all. That that defense is too good. They were too focused, and the other team was too desperate to to get multiple goals. It wasn't going to happen. Well, obviously, I mean, we, we didn't get to talk about the semifinal games. There's some other storylines in this World Cup that are worthy of mentioning. Let's talk about England, who was kind of the surprise team in the tournament. We can t- we're going to talk. I want to mention the draw a little bit later as well. But England, Canada, that quarterfinal draw was very much weaker than the other three. England comes out of it, gives Japan a run for their money. I thought that match was going into overtime, but then Laura Bassett had an own goal in the 92nd minute. I mean, we're talking minutes, maybe seconds away from overtime, and she scores an own goal for Japan. Obviously, Laura Bassett, an English player, she's in tears after the match. Were you able to watch this match, Bob? Or what are your thoughts on that? I, I did not watch it live, but I've seen it uh, after the fact. It's unfortunate. It's definitely unfortunate. But to say that everyone just keeps talking about the own goal, it's the own goal. So many things have had to happen to to set up that situation where an an opposing player is going to knock in the goal for you. I mean, it's not like she just turned around and kicked it into the goal. I mean, Japan put on the pressure and like we saw in today's match, America had her own goal. She's not getting a lot of blame for accidentally heading that ball in. I mean, it happens. And so obviously it's heartbreaking for it to happen in the 92nd minute semifinal, the world cup game, you essentially just lost the game for your team, but Japan put her in that situation. It's not like it's not like she just scored the goal on on total accident, like a Ricky Williams shooting in the, in the rim. I I feel bad for her, but at the same time, it happens, and and you just gotta live with it. Oh, certainly it happens, but it's a lot tougher when it's the deciding goal, as opposed to a goal that cuts a three goal lead to a two goal lead. Certainly she was crushed, and I'm just very happy that the reaction towards her was mainly supportive. A lot of people on social media, there wasn't a lot of backlash towards her, and so I'm happy about that, but at the same time, I'm going to ask a bit of a question here. If this were the England men's team, would there have been the same kind of support for a male player had he scored an own goal and knocked England out of the World Cup semifinals. Yeah, probably probably not. Um, I'm thinking about that situation in my head. Uh, he probably that player probably would have gotten torn apart on social media. But that's that's what I enjoy about about watching the women's World Cup. It's there's a different energy. It's more natural and more. It's just if it feels better watching these games than watching some of the, some of the men's teams play and, and how the men whine so much more than, than the women's teams do. There's just so much more chippy fouling. Um, it's just different. It, it's totally different. And I don't, it's not a bad thing, but um, yeah, the, the reaction would have been completely different if it, if it were the English men's team for sure. Oh, certainly. Cause I remember, in the men's game in 2010 against the U.S., the goalie slipped and the ball scored and it cost them a draw. And there was big backlash about that. And so 
look, I'm not trying to go, you know, male female here. I really hope that this isn't a male female thing. I hope that this is sort of fans starting to support their athletes in their moments in their darker moments or not not so strong moments. You know, Bassett obviously felt terrible. She didn't want to score that goal. I was very happy that fans were by and large supportive of her, and I hope that this is a trend of fans changing how they look at sports instead of it just being a male female thing. I hope that you know, because I remember in the the in football, the San Fran New York Giants game, when that punt returner for San Francisco mucked the punt, and he was getting death threats left and right. And it's just come on, man! Like obviously he feels just as terrible about it as you do. If you're supporting your own team. You should be propping this guy up and trying to help him get through what obviously is a very tough time in his life instead of just trying to tear him down left and right. So I hope that this is a change in fan attitude and that it isn't just a male-female thing, that we start seeing this more in sports, that when a player makes a unfortunate play like that, fans, especially of their own team, start supporting them and trying to prop them up and congratulating them on a fantastic season and seeing the glass half full instead of what was obviously an unfortunate play yeah i I hope so too but i think it's hard to one it's it's hard to ignore the fact that you're talking about the women's team versus the men's team and that not considering that comes into play and then another thing the the men's english team if you're if you're in england and you're a supporter of that team Every you expect them to win every single match and to win the World Cup every year. They're just that rabid about men's soccer, and the female team has been uh, has been lagging. It has been lagging in support and in quality play. And this World Cup for them was a celebration, even before, even after that goal, even after that goal when they played the consolation match. It was still a celebration because they've never been this successful as as a team. So I think expectations just for this team compared to the English men's team is, is completely different. So I think that probably had a little bit to do with the reaction as well. I agree with you there. I actually think that if the U.S. women's team had scored an own goal and got knocked out of the tournament, it might not be as bad a reaction, but I think I certainly think there would be a little more negative reaction because I do think expectations play into this. I think that English fans were content getting to the semifinals they were happy that their team got to the semifinals they had exceeded expectations or at least met them with that semifinal appearance and so losing on an own goal it's easier to see the bright side when your team's not supposed to win but when the weight of the world's on your shoulders and then you get knocked out because of an error or an unfortunate play that you caused it certainly causes fans to sort of bubble up to that more angry rage psycho fan level that i don't like yeah but yeah i agree with you i think expectations are a big part of it yeah certainly so um what what about the overall in the tournament what what were your impressions of it what do you think could be approved for the next one in 2019 uh did you think it was a good tournament i thought it was a very competitive tournament i i was very glad that this tournament showcased that the women's game is starting it to get deeper. And I think that's one of the biggest criticisms of women's sports in general is that there's a big divide between the elites and the middle class. 
And I think even though you saw traditional powers, the United States, Germany, and Japan get to the semifinals, you saw a lot of other teams sort of bubble up and give them a run for their money. I thought the U.S. had two very tough matches just to get to the semifinals. Colombia, a team that knocked off France. China, a team that's been to the World Cup finals before. So certainly you're starting to see the game get a little bit deeper. Australia knocking off Brazil in the first round of the knockout stage. Canada having a nice tournament in their home country. I think that this tournament was a very competitive tournament. They went to 24 teams. They maybe went to 24 teams a year too early. There were still some teams that were getting knocked around a bit. But hopefully this is the start of more depth starting to showcase in women's soccer. And that next World Cup, there's even more depth. And some of these teams that were getting knocked around a bit come in and start pushing back a little bit. And you're not seeing the United States there every year, even though I would love that, in Germany and Japan. And you're starting to see some new countries break through to the semifinals. I think it was overall a very competitive, very positive tournament. If you're asking me a criticism, I don't understand why France was placed in Germany's draw. I, I They predetermined the groupings with the rankings and stuff like that. I don't understand how France wound up on Germany's draw. I, I, I just think that France kind of got shortchanged a little bit. I think that the tournament committee wanted to try to set it up for Canada to have an easier road to the semis being the host country. I can understand the politics and economics of that, but ultimately I think fairness of play should win out. France should not have had to play Germany that early. France should have been on the Canada-England semifinal draw, and they probably would have been a semifinal team had they been in that pod. Yeah, I think that was the one questionable thing, but it, it certainly did not ruin the tournament for me. I think the tournament in every way was the best one yet for the, for the Women's World Cup. Uh, the coverage of it was the best. Uh, you didn't see anything that was just stupid or embarrassing for, for coverage of the Women's World Cup. The ratings are better than they've ever been for, for a Women's World Cup, and that that's fantastic. I think that's just going to be good for for soccer in general and good for American soccer that the most popular Women's World Cup was this year when the U.S. team won. Hopefully that uh, support for them will, will continue to grow and that will trickle over to the other side of the ball where the, the men's team can get as competitive as the women are. Uh, and then just the general play of the tournament was, was great. You had the blowout, the 10-0 blowout to start it off with Germany against uh, the Ivory Coast. But after that, I mean, every game was competitive. And I never got the sense, I guess, until today that the United States were just going to blow out their opponent. And even even today, it took 15 minutes for me to have that sense. But no, it was a great tournament. Everything was competitive, and uh, it was it was just a, a great event, especially in the summer when I usually don't expect awesome sporting events. So I'm really excited about the future of women's soccer and the future of United States soccer as as a whole. Yeah, well, the future of women's soccer will continue next year at the Olympics, and the next World Cup will be in France in 2019. But... International soccer does not stop today. In fact, the men's team, at least in the CONCACAF region, is getting revved up for the Gold Cup this Tuesday against, I believe, Argentina. No, not Argentina. Honduras. Honduras, I'm sorry. 
They start their group play in the regional tournament, the Gold Cup, this week, July 13th. No, yeah, this Tuesday. Excuse me, July 13th. I'm getting all confused. <laughs> You're getting your numbers mixed sorry. up. I am butchering this to death. This Tuesday, July 7th, they start the Gold Cup. You got to see them in a friendly on Friday. What were your impressions of the men's team? Well, it was fun. Uh, they definitely looked good. Uh, 4-0 victory against Guatemala, who will be participating in the Gold Cup. They're not in the U.S.'s group, uh, so they'll have to advance to the group stage to get a rematch, which might be hard for Guatemala. Yeah, it, the, the the team looked good, and that was a really good tune-up to, to have right going into the Gold Cup to tune up against a, a potential competitor. It, it was awesome. Uh, a lot of guys, a lot of the vets were back in. Uh, Clint Dempsey, Josie Altador, uh, Graham Zuzi, they were all back. Uh, one guy who stood out to me was uh, Diasi Zardes, I believe is how you say that name. He's a he's a wing player for the LA Galaxy, an attacking mid. Uh, look for him. I think in this Gold Cup, he's going to take the place of Josie Altador at some point. Uh Josie just has been disappointing for the last six years now. You've just been waiting for his potential with that speed and size that as a striker to, to, to capitalize on it. And he just hasn't been able to, I think it's time to move on from him. And this guy's art is he was, he was making plays in that match. So look for that. Um, if you're wondering why the gold cup is important, consider this the U S one in 2013. And if the U.S. wins this one in 2015, they will automatically qualify for the Confederations Cup in 2017, which is essentially an eight-team mini World Cup played in the 2018 host nation of Russia, where uh, each confederation uh, sends their best team to play in the tournament. The World Cup defending champ plays, and then the host nation plays. So it's a great opportunity for a team especially like the U S who needs all the experience they can get to get some experience in the country where the world cup is going to be hosted against the top talents of the world. So if they win this 2015 gold cup, they will have an automatic qualifier. If they lose it, they will have to play a playoff match with the 2015 winner because they're the 2013 gold cup winner in later this year to determine who's going to that confederations cup. So it does have some, implications into how prepared the team will be for the 2018 world cup yeah altador actually is someone i'd like to watch in this gold cup because it's unfortunate what happened to him last year in the world cup i believe he's pulled his hamstring in the very first match and didn't play for the rest of the tournament so it's unfortunate what's happened to him i think last world cup was a great chance for him to maybe break out with klingsman as coach they were going to feature him a little bit more and then he gets hurt in the first half of the first game and doesn't even play for the rest of the tournament. I also found out that Tim Howard's not going to be playing this Gold Cup. I guess he's taking a year off from international competition. Do you think the U.S. can win this tournament without Howard at goal? Yeah, they, they certainly can. Um, the one strength the Americans have had for a really long time is breeding quality goalkeepers. And the unfortunate part of that is you can only play one <laughs> in a match and you have Tim Howard, who's widely considered one of the best in the nation, who's anchored that spot for years. It's a good chance for a guy, Brad Guzan, to actually get some reps and prepare for life without Tim Howard because we talked about him earlier. He's 36. 
So he's going to be 38 or 39 when the next World Cup rolls around. It's really up to him if he wants to play. Uh, they certainly can because Guzan, he plays for Aston Villa. He's 30 years old, well-experienced. Um, they're they're set with him. Uh, obviously, he's not Tim Howard, but he he is a fine goalkeeper, and th- they'll certainly be all right with him. Oh, cool. So regardless of what happens in this tournament, if the U.S. loses, they still have a shot at that Confederations Cup because they've won the 2013 Gold Cup. So it's pretty nice to have that in their back pocket. Yeah, certainly. And the... It's a it's a great opportunity. I think most winners of the World Cup go to that Confederations Cup, so it'll it'll be a great moment for the U.S. team to do it. And they've gone before and, and have done really well in the past. That's right. They upset Spain the last time they went to the Confederation Cups, I believe, in the knockout round. Yeah, yeah. It was their first. They knocked it. Spain was number one in the world. They had that long match streak going on. Yeah, no, that was a big one, and that was a big moment for U.S. soccer. All righty, well, switching from football to a more familiar version of football for you Americans out there, in case you haven't heard, this story's been kind of buried a little bit with all that's going on. I haven't heard too much about it, but the NFL dished out four suspensions over the 4th of July weekend, most notably Antonio Gates, who is, full disclosure, one of my favorite players in the NFL you don't know his backstory, he played basketball at Kent State, one of my alma maters. Led them to the 2002 Elite Eight, wasn't even drafted, and now became one of the best tight ends in the NFL for the San Diego Chargers. Well, he will be sitting out for four games for PEDs. And Bob, I, I know there are other guys on this list, there are three other guys on this list, but Gates is obviously the biggest headliner here. I think he was he's a surefire Hall of Famer. But given what's happened in baseball with A-Rod, with all those guys getting banned, like essentially banned from the Hall of Fame, they're never getting voted in because they were linked to PEDs, Gates now has a positive test. Do you think this is going to affect his Hall of Fame candidacy like it does guys in baseball? I don't think so. I I, I think it, it's two different uh, comparisons. Uh, PEDs and baseball, you saw guys cheating and abusing the rules to break records and baseball is obsessed with their records and obsessed with their numbers. And you just don't do that. You don't cheat to do that, to get yourself in the record books in baseball. So they're held on that standard. Whereas in football, these guys more every year we become more aware of just how brutal that game is. And for a guy, Antonio Gates, who, I don't how do you know how old he is? I, I he's past his thirties. I know that. I'm gonna look this up real quick because I butchered too many ages today. <laughs> well, he's getting up there in age, and for him to, he says he ingested it accidentally, and obviously I'm not buying that. Everyone says it's accidental. He knows what he should be taking, what he shouldn't be at this point. Um, for him to t- try and bend a rule and take some PEDs, it's bad, and he should be suspended if he failed that if he failed that drug test, but. It's not going to hurt the legacy that he has, which is, like you mentioned, he was the original basketball player to be turned tight end, which is what everybody wants now. He paved the way, he, not paved the way, He he's a trendsetter, and he was definitely one of the best tight ends in the last 10 years and contributed in revolutionizing the importance of that position. I don't think a four-game PED violation is going to ruin his career especially for this at the back end 
Certainly not, and he just turned 35, by the way, so he's ending, entering the twilight of his career, and I would say that he was probably the best tight end in the NFL for at least five or six years of his prime, and kind of took that torch from Tony Gonzalez, and like you said, helped sort of further revolutionize the tight end position by being the, the sort of basketball hybrid that people start looking for, sort of like Jimmy Graham and whatnot. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to affect his Hall of Fame candidacy for a couple of reasons. A, like you mentioned, baseball is a much different sport. Those guys were trying to chase very sacred records. Baseball and its record book, it's kind of like the Bible to them. So if you mess with that, you're really going to get hammered hard. Football doesn't treat PEDs the same way. You see this all the time, actually. I think it has to do with the fact that fans kind of trust the NFL a little bit more because they've had that PED policy in place longer than baseball, and they've been suspending guys more than baseball. Yeah, I think it's kind of contradictory because PEDs are still PEDs, but I don't think that people view PEDs in football at the same level as they do in baseball because I think people can see that PEDs have a much more drastic impact on the record book than they do in football. Right or wrong, I don't think this is going to hurt Gates' Hall of Fame candidacy at all. Just real quick, though, Sheldon Richardson, Rolando McLean, and Dantone Jones are the other three guys on that list who got suspended. Jones was a one-game suspension. The other two guys, four games, were suspension for substance abuse, either PEDs or weed or something like that. Well, for Richardson McLean, I I know it it's marijuana. They've it's been reported that's marijuana, and again, yeah, that's it's different from PEDs, marijuana, and I think marijuana in the NFL is a serious issue. That whenever they collectively bargain again, I think you're definitely going to see some rule changes in that drug policy for for marijuana. In terms of the four guys that we talked about, Sheldon Richardson is probably the most impactful. Uh, he's been probably one of the best interior I don't actually I don't think he's an interior 3-4 D lineman he's he's been one of the best 3-4 D linemen in the league for since he was drafted two years ago thankfully for the Jets they drafted Leonard Williams uh essentially to be a backup and he was regarded as one of the best linemen in the draft so they won't be missing him too much but Richardson has been a great player and for him to get suspended for four games definitely hurts the Jets probably the most out of any of these teams with a guy suspended yeah, and plus the Jets probably aren't going to be too good this year, so they can't really be losing as much that much talent. No, certainly not. And a team, I mean, all their talent is is on the defensive side, and he's their anchor on that line. So they'll definitely be missing that. It's just, it's unfortunate. Um, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be suspended because it's what they collectively bargained for, but I definitely think you're going to see a change to that marijuana policy soon. Certainly. All right, man. A couple quick ones here. Wimbledon's underway, one of my favorite tournaments of the year. Rafael Nadal is no longer part of it. He lost to a qualifier. Is the is he done? I I I just think that Rafael Nadal, the injuries are finally catching up to him. This year, you saw it kind of affect him on clay. Even though he had to play the world number one in the quarterfinals, kind of unfair, but. I don't know, man. I think Nadal might just be a clay court guy from here on in. Yeah, I could see that. He has the history and the reputation as being uh, 
so good because of his physical fitness and dominance. And if his body starts failing him, he doesn't have much else to rely on. So clay, obviously it's going to take longer for him to fade on clay because he's dominated that for so long. But yeah, this, this is probably the, the, the twilight years of Rafael Nadal for sure. He might win another slam if it's the French. I don't see him winning any of the other three majors, especially not hard court. Hard court's just too hard on your body and whatnot. But I think he might be able to sneak another French Open if he is healthy for one year. And he's just been so dominant on clay, it's hard to bet against him if he's 100%. Truth be told, I haven't been able to watch much of Wimbledon this week. I'm glad I'm uh, on vacation from work this week. Or this coming week, I'll get to watch more of the later rounds of the tournament. It's always fun to sit back and enjoy it. And Bob, it's not 4th of July without the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, man. And Joey Chestnut's eight-year reign of dominance has come to an end by Matt Stoney. 62 hot dogs to 60. Chestnut once ate 69. Bob, could you eat 10 in this time? Do you think you could eat 10? How much time do I have? I don't know. Not a lot. I think it's like five minutes. I mean, it would be hard for me to stomach ten Nathan's hot dogs uh, in any given amount of time. They're just gross, <laughs> and for them to just be sucking them down on water, like soaking them up and then just shoving them in their mouth, it's gross. And it was a really disgusting thing to watch this year when you're a little bit hungover and watching these guys just slam hot dogs down. It was it was disgusting. Oh, yeah, man. It's always a really nasty event. But somehow, I mean, it is kind of entertaining. Oh, I I mean, always now watch. these guys can suck down these hot dogs. <laughs> I always love, though, how there's always two guys. There's always two guys that's like 65, 63, and then the next eater is like 32. I mean, the yeah. third place guy is always like miles behind and whoever it, the top two and are. And it's, it's always Eater X. I love that guy. <laughs> He's he's he's, he's like been, a lock on third. <laughs> he's been competing longer than any of them. He was he he competed before Joey Chestnut, and he's so goofy. And it, I I love that guy. <laughs> he just makes me laugh. The best was when Kobayashi. It is Kobayashi, right? Yeah, it's Kobayashi. Yeah, Kobayashi. When he tried to sneak into the contest because he wouldn't sign like the marketing deal or whatever, right. and he tried to sneak in, and they had to call. I thought that was great. Yeah. That was probably the best year for the contest. No, that that was really cool. You know, I watched a, an MTV True Life about eaters, and it was about race, Eater X and Kobayashi, and it was actually, like, really interesting and cool to see what they, what they did. And this was before Kobayashi was, like, super famous. And those guys just – they're going to have some serious issues in a couple of years with their digestive tract. Oh, certainly. I mean, you can't ingest – well, I don't know. I mean, if this is the only year they do it, maybe. But th- you can't just show up now. You got to practice for that stuff. I-, I have no idea what goes into training for that. But hats off to Matt Stoney for getting his first uh, Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. I believe it's the Mustard Belt, they call it. So yeah, the Mustard congratulations. Belt. Ending Chestnut's do- – I mean, Chestnut dominated this thing. I mean, he didn't just win. I mean, he'd always get like 65, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. But – all right, if you made it this far and you were hoping we'd talk about it, the NBA at some point, we are sorry to disappoint you. We are saving all the NBA free agent happenings for next week. We're going to do a big 
NBA free agent recap. Once we are 100% sure dust is settled, there's yeah. still some rumors out there, still some free agents who have to land, maybe some trades or two. So we want to make sure the land is clear before we do a recap. And plus, we want to take. We're not going to discuss it until Tristan Thompson signs his contract. <laughs> and then hopefully LeBron James follows suit back with Cleveland as well. So. Don't worry, we haven't forgotten about basketball. We wanted to take a little bit of break because of all the happenings in soccer. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of basketball, but we have not forgotten about NBA free agency. And just a little bit of a spoiler alert, teams are going nuts. They are just spending money like there is no tomorrow, man. What are your, just, just an initial reaction of just the craziness of all the spending, man. I mean, is it, hasn't it been ridiculous? It's definitely been ridiculous, but I mean, we both expected it in our, in our previews for NBA free agency that mid-level teams, mid-market teams are going to, if they have cap space, they're going to use it this year as opposed to next year when everybody's going to have cap space with the cap boom. So, uh, it's been crazy to see some of these numbers, but in two or three years, some of those contracts are going to look very, very affordable and nice in the new landscape that'll be happening next year. Yeah, if you think this year's crazy, next year, I, I don't even know what to think with the whole new cap and everything. I mean, you've got next year and then 2017, a probable lockout. So there's going to be a lot to talk about in the NBA for years to come. But unfortunately, it's not going to happen this podcast. We'll get it next week. Thank you guys for making it this far and giving us your support. Please come back to our website, FenleyRoadSports.com. We'll have some more blogs up for you. Obviously, some more content up for you. We'll get this podcast up for you. Please subscribe via iTunes if you enjoy our show. Please follow us on Twitter for more updates. That's FenleyRD Sports. Also, follow us on Instagram for other updates. That's FenleyROAD Sports. And thank you once again for your support. Thanks for listening. And hopefully, the weather's starting to turn wherever you may be. Get outside, enjoy the sun, especially if you're in the north like me, because we only get about two or three months of this stuff before it starts raining again. So till next time, thanks for listening. All right. See you, Chris. I'm right, Take it easy, Bob.